Shall Be Done Old Grad Podcast, where we feature unscripted interviews with graduates of the United States Military Academy Class of 1991. The Duty Shall Be Done Old Grad Podcast with your host, Jamie Schleck, starts now. All right, welcome everybody. Welcome to episode number 31 of the Old Grad Podcast. And it is my great honor tonight to to introduce uh, four very special people in my life, four people that uh, carried me through the four years at West Point, uh, the female classmates, uh, the amazing superwomen of Company F1. So welcome, welcome everybody. Hey, Jamie. Hey, Jamie. Hey. Hi, everybody. So I am so psyched to be able to talk to you, you all tonight. I'm not going to say you guys. I'm trying to say you guys. I know it's kind of a sexist little uh, uh, term to say. So I'm going to say you all. I'm going to try to say you all as much as I can. So welcome. I'm so happy to have you. Um, you know that I've been um, I've been talking about trying to do this for a while, and I really appreciate you guys taking the time and indulging me and, and agreeing to do this tonight. So it's a special, special night. So um, let me just say that the four people that we have that were introduced here, uh, Stephanie uh, Souther DeLay, Libby Bonk-Shot, Sharon DeCrane-Bull, and Julie Wood-Nelson, uh, the four F1 ladies from Company F1. And uh, all four years, made it all the way through, started with four, ended with four. That's, I know that's a big, um, a big thing, a big source of great pride for the four of you. And so, uh, so welcome again. So. Why don't we go first, um, kind of go around, like, tell us, like, where you live, what you're doing, family life, um, and favorite memory from West Point. So uh, I'm going to ask, I'm going to go in the order of the the, uh, the pictures on the screen. So, Steph, why don't you go first? Just a technical glitch. It should be back up now. See, we're back. We're back. Eric Christensen said we're back. All right, we're back. <laughs> we're back. We're live. So, we broke. thank you. <laughs> No, you didn't do anything wrong. So, so Steph, I'm sorry. You might have gotten cut off. You might not have been. So, why don't you give us the quick rundown again, and then we'll go to we'll go to Libby next. <laughs> okay, that's really not fair. <laughs> um, all right. So, Steph, I heard Libby too, so I'm going to change mine a little bit. But <laughs> I was originally from New Mexico. Um, I graduated. I married a classmate, not the 91, but 90, um, Mike Delay. We have two kids. Um, my daughter is a senior at Rice. She'll be done in about two weeks, Lord willing. And my son is a junior in high school. And so he's getting ready to do that. And in another year, we're going to be empty nesters, which is super exciting. Um, Probably one of my favorite memories, at least a fun memory from West Point, was being assigned on guard duty in the Central Guard Room and getting to make the donuts are in announcement, which honestly, I love that. If I can make an announcement where you didn't have video and you didn't know it was me, that is my, that's my thing. So anyway. It's a very, <laughs> spe- it. very special honor to be able to say the donuts are in. It is, right? Yeah, it was fun. <laughs> I, you know, just as an aside, I just remember one of the funny things about Chris Harlan, who would really not say very much. He's kind of a quiet guy. But right. the, thing, the thing about him that was so funny was that 
if somebody made a mistake making an announcement on Central Guard Room, he would like kick the garbage can, throw shit across the room. He gets so mad at people for making those mistakes. So he's just so funny, that guy. Um, Did he ever have to? Yeah, he, he, could, he could definitely be like, um, could definitely be, be funny that way. So, so Libby, how about you? Okay, so um, I joined West Point from uh, Cape Coral, Florida. And after I graduated, I uh, went quartermaster, moved out to Fort Ward, where I met and uh, married Russ Shaw, who's actually one of our classmates. Um, we did 20-plus uh, years together in the Army and ended up retiring from West Point as our last duty assignment. Um, after we retired, we moved back home to Cape Coral, Florida, and I literally live next door to my dad now and uh, work on his old college campus. So it's, it's, no matter how far you stray, you always end up back home. And um, we have three kids. My daughter is uh, currently at UCF, but she's planning to take this next semester off to um, work at Yellowstone. And I have twins who are in eighth grade going into ninth. The twins are uh, two boys? Two boys. Two boys, nice. Yeah, I love them, Carl. Uh, Sharon? Hey, Sharon DeCrane Bull. I was a Cleveland, Ohioan uh, by birth. Uh, prior to going to West Point after graduation, I branched aviation. Uh, served a little over 10 years. Met my husband, uh, Patrick Bull, at Fort Campbell, uh, also flying. And then I, when I left the Army, I went uh, to the FBI, which was always my goal. So I've been an agent for just under 18 years. And Patrick got out of the army a little bit before me, went to the airlines and then ended up after 9-11 coming to the FBI also. So we are both in Northern Virginia, just Southwest of DC. And each of us with one of our headquarters aviation units. So uh, one of my favorite memories, I think from West Point is Recognition Day after Polybier. <laughs> I was going to say the same thing. <laughs> Julie, how about you? Um, I'm Julie Wood Nelson, and I came to West Point through um, Alaska. My dad was in the Army, so that's why I was so far away. And um, I... Um, Went into the military police corps. My first duty assignment was Fort Campbell, Kentucky. Um, I recently got married to Ronnie Nelson in January. So life is awesome. Congratulations. And, <laughs> and I have um, four kids. Um, Katie is a math teacher in high school. And Sarah is a legal assistant. And Rachel is a finishing up her freshman year at University of Alabama. And Ryan is a senior in high school. And um, I also have a grandson, and um, Katie's his mom, and he's seven months old. His name's Nathan, and he's just adorable. Wow. Um, specialist right now. I know I'm a grandma. <laughs> I'm Nana. Um, but anyway, I'm a contract specialist. I work on Redstone Arsenal in Alabama. That's near Huntsville. And um, I... Um, work on the unmanned aircraft systems for um do contracts and stuff for them so anyway um, that's great oh favorite memory um i have lots of different memories i kind of struggle though to come up with a favorite and so this isn't really a favorite but i just always laugh when i think about it 
um, plebe year. You know, you had to head into the table, had to announce the main course. And I, we were having some pasta dish. And I am sitting there at the table and just could not remember the name of that dish. I mean, couldn't. And so I took the dish. And I kind of held it up. I'm like, sir, then, you know, whatever we said, the menu for today is. And I was like, and I put it back down. And then, like, I picked it up again. And I said that again. And I just, I just made up something. I just, and it was the first thing that came in my head. It was like, Spironi Renjet. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, I got chewed out. But it was, I just, it was hilarious. So, um, it was really, I don't know where I came up with that name. But anyway, that's one of my fun memories. <laughs> Those are some crazy times. So, Shara, what about what about recognition? It was so memorable to you. Seriously? Yeah, I'm just wondering. Like, what, I'm because I'm, I'm thinking we have the same memory. I have that memory. I'm, I'm thinking about what are you thinking about that like made you remember that specific day? I mean, just I th- the end of it. <laughs> just, just making it all end. Oh. You know, and just being able to feel like a human being and talk to your classmates and, you know, just interact with people again without, you know, just feeling like you were going to get yelled at or anything. Just taking a deep breath and, you know, realizing you made it. What I what I remember about that is that they had our first names on the poster when we were like coming back from uh, that whatever that oh. parade was. I remember they had our first names, and I was I was just impressed that they had everybody's first name on there. And they had that that sign that said, uh, uh, "What did it say?" It said, uh, "Pressure makes diamonds," or something, or whatever. They like uh, yeah. I think they had a sign that said that or something. I, cause that's I I've said that many times to my kids. Oh, I just remember that that I that's one of my memories too that I have. So. So we should say hello to some of our classmates that are on the line here, and we you can I'm getting I'm getting hazed here because we had these technical difficulties, and uh, people are commenting that we should get on the WebEx and Chinese hackers, and we got Brooks Creation, Matt Lewis, Eric Christensen, Rob Craddock, uh, Terry Rice, Steve Letzring, Alex Rogers, Nancy Lynn Green, and uh, I saw we also had. Um, uh, Brent Crabtree, uh, Moni Washington. And if you guys could occasionally just give me a thumbs up in the, uh, in the chat that just let me know that the, uh, technology is still working well, that would be good. Libby, you got Russ in the background just to confirm that we haven't gone off. Right. So <laughs> Brent Crabtree was asking me, what am I doing a Philmont? Yeah, this is my background is this is Philmont Boy Scout camp. And this is a big seminal kind of like location for people who are Boy Scouts to go to. So Hopefully I get to go back to the summer, but I don't know. Scotty Halstead's also on the line. So I'll say a shout out to Steve Rustring. I don't think I've seen him since I graduated, but he's actually from my mom's hometown in Fremont, Ohio. Oh, it's a very unique connection. I met him there. That's neat. So did did he? What you just happened to have a conversation with him and randomly decided, randomly found out from the same hometown? But yeah, he's from Fremont, Ohio, and you know the family was Fremont born and Fremont bred. And when you die, you'll be Fremont dead. That's what my dad used to say to my mom all the time. Um, and I actually, I think, I actually road trips with him back to Fremont because my mom was one of six, and four of the six still lived in Fremont. So he drove me back home once. Cool. 
So one of one of the Can reasons I, one of the reasons why I wanted to have all four of you on at the same time was there's a couple couple reasons. Like this old grad podcast, you may have heard. The reason for it was to just kind of reconnect with old classmates. It's around our our class giving gift. It's around remembering our fallen classmates. It's around lifting each other up and also uh, celebrating each other's successes. And so been trying to do this now. I've been doing it for for uh, about a little over a year. Liv, are we still good? That's some nervousness here. It's killing me here. Hold on a second. You're not going to make me say my thing again, are no, you? No, 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 no. We're going to into it. God damn it. All right. I'd remember to say, like, what I did in the Army. <laughs> Nothing to cut off on Sharon. So Julie might get to say hers again. Well, the good news is the whole thing is being recorded by voice. So the pod bean is going to get the whole thing. So We're good with audio. Yeah, we're good with audio. That's fine. Well, this is one way to get an hour and a half in. Yeah, it is. Yeah. But that's a hard stop from what I read. That's what I heard. It is a hard out. <laughs> I think that was part of the contract. Right? <laughs> Jamie's like, you people are making me sweat now for sure. <laughs> Why did I ask you all to be on here? Uh... <laughs> I feel like we should play music in the background or do a rocket or rocket. <laughs> I should pull out the yearbooks today. That was hilarious. Oh my gosh. Half of that, sometimes the stuff in the yearbook, you know, when you write that underneath, I'm like, what was that? <laughs> you know, I should have used more words. Because <laughs> you and I wrote ours together. Right? I remember purple spots in the AM. I do remember that. Right? And the other one was dress gray under web belt, which is what we were trying to think of the other day. Oh, yes. When we had to go out and have our military instruction. That's right. Because the cavalry did not have horses in it anymore. <laughs> was that, was it Matsuda? Oh. Craig Matsuda. Or- Craig Matsuda. Yeah. We are live again, by the way. We're live. So people are hearing us oh. a little. Well, no, it's okay. Listen, we're just having a conversation, but we're live again now, finally. I'm sorry for the technical difficulties, everybody. This is, I'm doing this from home. This, I'm not really doing it from Philmont. I'm doing it from home. And I guess my bandwidth here is not as good as I normally have when I do it from my office location. So um, thank you, everybody, for uh, rejoining us if you've, uh, if you've just got a chance to rejoin us. Um, so going back to the, the genesis of this podcast, we're trying to have a good, diverse group of different people. I've definitely talked to a lot of folks, people that I've known, people that I haven't known across the core, people that are career army officers, people that were you know civilians, um, people that were athletes, people that were minorities, people of color. The one demographic that's been a little harder to kind of convince people is getting female classmates to come on. I've gotten a good, a good amount, maybe even proportionally a good amount, but there's always like this little bit of reticence that I've noticed in um, asking, asking people to, to come on. And that was one of the reasons why I wanted to have all four of you on at the same time, because 
you're like your own little elite military unit, I've noticed. I mean, everybody kind of like checks in with everybody else. Would, would, would you say that that's accurate? I don't know about the elite part, but yes, we are a little <laughs> unit. <laughs> we operate as a pack. Yeah. Yeah. Safety in numbers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and one of the things that you always pride yourselves on was like, you know, you started with four, you ended with four. You were always, you always had each other's back. You always were supportive of one another. And also, I have to say, each, e- you were each far and away, like way above average cadets in terms of everything, academics, military, physical fitness. Like you didn't seem to have a hard time with the place like a lot of us did, in my opinion. <laughs> probably not how it felt though. <laughs> no, no. When you think back to um, some of the challenges that you had at West Point or like like the, the memories that you had of like having to navigate like um, being a woman at West Point, like what were some of the experiences that you had where you were able to like maybe just confide in one another or talk about challenges you were having? Like, like were there any types of situations like that that you were faced with? we all given how similar I think we were I I mean I think that's why we all ended up at least I know for me being able to just make it through like nobody was a core squatter nobody was a prepster so we were all I mean we all shared the same misery (laughs) you know no nobody had a unique experience as far as you know how how bad it was or maybe they didn't go through something you know, one of the others did. And I think that really, I mean, as far as confiding, I mean, every, just being able to have Steph, Jules and live in the company. I mean, regardless, we all got along, we all, you know, helped each other through. And I, I think that was key. And I think that because there were four of us that you know, there was always someone around that if you needed to talk to, you know, so, you know, it was just, it was really wonderful. And we got to rotate roommates too, which was uh, not a privilege all companies had. Each of you were obviously you went through Beast together, right? So what was that like, um, Lib? You said you showed up in in Beast the first day, and you're like, "Where's my roommate? There's no there's no roommate here, right? Wasn't Steph like one of the last ones to show up on our day or something?" Uh, I don't remember. I just remember you were definitely one of the later people in the company. You didn't somebody tell you to be there early, which is crazy. <laughs> my dad, my, my dad, of course, is a college professor, so he's got no military whatsoever. But he just, oh, we're out, Jamie. Um, Lib, you're just saying that Steph was kind of one of the later ones to arrive on the first day of Beast. So what was that like? She walks in, says, "Hi, I'm Stephanie from New Mexico," and uh, you know, we're about to spend four years of this with this this crazy life with you, or what? Hi, it was like crazy happening. Let's get dressed. Let's put our stuff away. Throw stuff on the bed. We got to be out in formation, right? I it, I don't even you know you didn't really have that kind of time on on our day. Nope. I think we hit the ground running, right? Right. 
at least you seem to have a little orientation more so than I did, I think, walking in. So <laughs> you've been there since first thing in the morning. I was one of the first people to come to arrive in the company. <laughs> and Julie <Joy. laughs> Julie, because you come from yeah. a military military family, did you have any inkling, any idea of what was what you were stepping into? I only I only knew about the West Point part because my parents had sent me down for an overnight visit, so that's where I saw, you know, what life as a plebe at West Point was like. But um, you know, I was in familiar environment with uniforms and you know, stuff like that and military lingo and things like that. But other, yeah, I don't think anything can prepare you for the, being a plebe on our day. You didn't have to learn how to shine, shine your shoes ahead of time. Your dad didn't sit down and say, here's how you spit shine your shoes. Oh no, no, I didn't. I remember Dave Baxter helped me with that. <laughs> so. I remember I back. He helped me too. Bax helped everybody. Bax was, Bax was a prepster. He's knowledge, <laughs> knowledgeable at everything. He, he was knowledgeable about more things than he even knew he was knowledgeable about. But my dad did give me the night before our day, he gave me um, kind of a, a gold plated set of dog tags, which was really cool. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, it was sweet. Yeah, my dad is sweet. So I should tell you about it. When we from New Mexico, there were four of us. And um, I'm not sure if any of us, maybe Joel Quinn. It was Joel Quinn, Mark Kramer, and I, and then one other who was not from our town, Luis, but I can't remember his full name. And um, our colonel that was in charge of recruiting from New Mexico thought that it would be our first leadership challenge. He talked all the parents into it, that none of the parents would go with us to West Point. That we were, they were just supposed to buy us a plane ticket. So we all went on the same flight, the four of us. They flew us into Newark. And then that was it. And he oh said, your first challenge is to figure out how to get there. And he, you know, I was thinking about it now. Can you imagine sending your child to college, just putting them on a plane and being like, hey, good luck. Oh, so, terrible. <laughs> it's terrible. It's terrible. <laughs> So your caving started when you left New Mexico. Yes. It's crazy. So we had to figure out, we like figured out how to get to Grand Central Station. I don't even know why we went there other than we thought, oh, that's where we've heard, you know, you can get a bus from anywhere. We ended up having to like befriend this homeless man named Shabash (laughs) that like pointed us in the right direction and got us on, I think it was a bus or a train up to... Anyway, so by the time I made it to our day, we finally got there. I I felt like I'd already been through the ringer, and none of us had ever been there before. Oh my god! So did you do that all in one day, Steph? You did it all in one day. We did it all in one day. We well, we did it all. So not our day, but like the days prior to our day, we flew in, and then we ended up. We did have a room in the fair overnight, and um, then went in the next morning. How does that work? You like just get up, you walk out of the fair and just like walk up to the holiday center or was there a bus there for you guys? Or like how was anybody knew that you were going to be there? Yes. I think, I mean, cause there were a bunch of us there. I'm not, I cannot remember. I'm sure they must've bought this. Liv, do you remember? So 
you know, my, my parents drove me up with my sister. And uh, so I don't remember how I got from the Sarah Pahologer Center, but I do remember my dad who had been incredibly supportive. I was going to love this adventure. It's going to be you know fabulous. And when you have that like five minutes to say goodbye, he whispered in my ear, I put $500 in your savings account. If you don't like it, come home. And then at Thanksgiving, he said, do you like it? And I said, yeah. He said, okay, that's the money for your plane ticket for Christmas. <laughs> But, you know, in hindsight, that was incredibly supportive. Yes, it was. But at the time, I was like, what just happened? (laughs) So we were talking on the pre-call. We had a really good time, the four of us, the five of us talking, the four four of you and me (laughs) um, talking on the the pre-call. We ended up talking for well over two hours, just kind of like, remembering old times and also just really kind of like re-dissecting a bunch of events that happened when we were there for the four years. And it occurs to me, and by the way, um, you all, you all mentioned to me too, that there's a book that was written by one of our female classmates that I didn't even realize was written. It it was um, by, by Jen Bodian company E1. And um, I ended up after we talked to four of us, I ended up reading that entire book in one night because it was just, so eye-opening to me to recognize, and this is part of the reason why I want to do this podcast, because many of the memories that I have as kind of like the member of the, you know, the, the, the dominant male culture of West Point, many, many of those memories are memories that we don't all, we, we don't all share. We don't all have that. Not every memory of West Point is one that is of great, you know, like I think even my shittiest day, I look back on with a little bit of nostalgia, but that's not that is not necessarily the case for everybody. And um, so, and I think that that's specifically the case for many of our classmates who were women, because it was so difficult to not just go through West Point, but go through West Point and be part of this minority of people that were really pioneers in um, in setting the stage for the next generation army. So would you would you agree with that? Yes. <laughs> hold on, hold on. You always have to have a garbage can in the door. You can't have two people in the room if if you can't have more. You can't have a you know a male and female in the room if if you're just the two of you. And like, how did that kind of manifest itself in the in the type of uh, interactions you had with fellow classmates? You know, I am probably not the best one to talk about this because I, I honestly, you know, people always ask me all the time, like, oh, well, how was it to be a woman there? And I always say, well, I don't know. Is that just, you know, I don't know how it was to be a man there. I just know how it was to be me there. And I didn't honestly feel, I, I really didn't feel singled out there or that the fact that being a woman was a problem and it's probably because I was just I was so overwhelmed with the whole thing like that didn't even occur to me I was just there and I was trying to get through it and I was doing my best and I never I really didn't think about it too much the fact that I was female or not male and I I honestly can't remember ever having anyone specifically 
I mean, I knew there were people that probably weren't thrilled, but they never said anything to me directly. And it, you know, I just didn't, it, it just wasn't a thing really for me there. Yeah. Uh, the only thing I would say is the only time I ever really noticed and I was like, wow, that just sucks is when we would have a date, like a date, like oh, yeah. or one of those. And the women had to go in our uniform, which is fine. But, and then the guys would bring dates from, you know, home or whatever in typical, beautiful dresses. And, and so that is probably the one time I would say in our career where I was really like, oh, <laughs> yeah, okay, that makes you feel different. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Remember, I was at cow and um which always bothered my mom that I called myself a cow mm -hmm. uh, but I was a cow in central guard room and a civilian came in and he didn't believe I was a cadet because I was a woman and I remember being like so shocked by that um because I didn't even consciously realize that you know the class of 80 was so far ago um it didn't even occur to me that the long gray line wasn't totally integrated at that point um you know, I didn't remember West Point without women. So I was shocked that he didn't honestly believe I was a cadet. I remember getting stopped by tourists a lot, and they always wanted to take your picture because you were a female cadet. So I'm in a lot of photo albums. <laughs> so I also think this is... Okay. Oh, sorry, Dave. No, no, you go, you go. I just had one other thought which related to the whole um, people from outside coming in. The only other thing I ever noticed was, you know, when guys come from high school and they go to West Point and they have their girlfriends that they've dated, you know, it's like a big thing and the girls come and it's all exciting. And mm -hmm. I had a boyfriend in high school and we still did for the first year or so while I was at West Point and I remember that coming up a couple of times and, and it was always interesting because of course, you know, a male that does not go to West Point, like you know, that would be this bamboo shoots under the nails to get them to come to that environment. So it always just struck me as interesting, the contrast between a female cadet with a male civilian boyfriend trying to bring them into the West Point environment versus a male West Pointer with a, you know, female significant other from the civilian world. I don't know if you guys listened to the, I did a podcast a while back with John Abercrombie and he was talking about having a date come up to 500th night or one yearling winter weekend. And we were reminiscing about these, the cattle cars, how they would just, you know, have a whole bus of, 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 you know, to bring women up from Newark <laughs> airport or, and, uh, and it was, you know, it was very odd for the dates because nobody knows each other, but they're all just like, you know, somebody's holding up a sign saying West Point this way. And then they, you know, random strangers all come up for the dance. And we were, we were just thinking like, are there any males that go out that way? Like, like, is that, what is the dynamic like on the bus? If you're like the, you know, the two or three men that are on that bus and there's like 20 women, what that must have been like. So kind of an interesting dynamic, but um, yeah, I mean, just. Well, I never even, I. Good. So say, I don't know if I have a female that came in that way. Mm -hmm. 
Did, you guys? did your boyfriend come to West Point for any of the dances or anything, Steph, or no? No, no. We talked about it, and that was clearly something that was uncomfortable. Like, it was, you know, not going to happen, I think. So, that was interesting. That's what we want, then. So I'm just, I'm, I got this highlighted section from Jen Bodian's book, which I found fascinating. There's two things. First of all, it was like, every woman gets asked the same questions about what West Point's like. Was it tough? What was it like to be a woman? They must've been so proud of you, blah, blah, blah. Was it like to be, was there sexual harassment? Was there inappropriateness? Was there sex in the barracks? These are the inevitable questions that get asked of every female cadet. And then she recalls a time, I think that it was at Buckner, and they were coming back from a field exercise and there was a, um, there was a conversation among a couple of our classmates. It was somebody had a, a, porno, a pornographic magazine that they pulled out and they were in the back of this deuce and half and five ton. And they were just kind of going back and forth in this, you know, kind of very juvenile way. And, um, and she was just right there. She was like not part of the conversation, but she was there in the back of this bus in the back of the, uh, of the deuce and half. And, um, and then somebody asked her about it years later and, and they said, why didn't you say something? Why wouldn't, why wouldn't you have stood up for yourself or said that's inappropriate? And what she said was with your, to quote her from her book is that when you're with a bunch of guys in the woods and women are the 10% minority, you don't want to, you don't want to be perceived as anything other but a team player. It's like you're an honorary guy. And uh, that was her perspective. Yeah. Like, you know, when you're, when you're at, at that percentage level, you, it's not appropriate to sort of stand up. You got to let just guys be guys. Did you ever feel that way as well? I did. And I was almost relieved to be one of the guys. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, okay, I'm, I'm good. I'm in. They're not going to pick on me, right? So that was good in a weird way. Oh, yeah. I think the last thing that we wanted to do, any of us probably, was draw any kind of attention to the fact that we were women or that there, no, that there should be some different standard of behavior because we are around. I mean, I know I clearly did not ever want that. Yeah, I think it's for them to be comfortable and it, it is weird looking back on it now that that actually made you feel more comfortable that you know the group of guys was comfortable around you whatever making jokes however inappropriate they were you know in your example Jamie also that you would actually prefer that than to be singled out you know and not feel like you're you know just one of the guys or part of the team so yeah, I remember just wanting to be one of the guys, you know, just like they said. Didn't want any attention on the fact that I was a girl and just um, being one of the guys. I wonder if that changes at all, though, with the percentage. Like, if, if there's, like, a inflection point or, like, a critical mass, is it still that way today with women making up 25 or 30 or 35% of the Corps of Cadets? Is it the case that now it's not just that women need to deal with men is that men need to deal with women as well. If, if there's a change there, I, Libby, you, you taught there. So did you have any like more modern perspective? 
when I was stationed there on my first tour as a captain, I remember the admissions committee was working hard to get the women above 20%. And apparently the research, and I didn't personally do the research, it's just kind of secondhand, was that at, if you integrate units at less than 20%, minorities might eat their own, right? Like you're so conscious at that small percentage. Um, and, you know, there's lots of stories about how 80, 80 and 81 and 82 um, had drama between the classes. Um, and so there was this push to get a women's numbers above 20%. So they might actually integrate fully and, and be normal. And I think they finally got it to 25, which might be what it is now. And there was a lot of discussion about that at the time. Of, and I was a captain and a major at the time. Like, what, what's the right percentage of women? And I always said it had to mirror the Army. And other people would say, well, if we don't get it here, the Army will never get there. And so it was an interesting debate. And But the goal had been to get above 20% so that you could change that dynamic. And they, they, I think they wanted the same for minorities. And I think an, Annapolis is the only one that ever made it in any given year. In terms of women or in terms of minorities? Minorities. Uh -huh. um, because again, they don't have quotas, they have goals. And you know, you have to qualify and, all, and you have to want to come, and you have to get the application. And I, I remember one year, Annapolis, I think, made it above 20% for minorities. and was a huge deal in the community. Um, and again, this is 10, 15 years ago, so my, my memories are suspect. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of a fascinating dynamic, though. I can see how that might be true, that if you're below 10%, then there's a chance that... I mean, well, I've, I've said this before on other podcasts, is that if you're a woman at West Point when we were there, First of all, you didn't have any faculty members or any tax that were women grads. There were women officers, of course, but there were not women graduates. So nobody had that experience until the very, very end. And you basically damn well get along with your, with your other female classmates because that's all you got, basically, for roommates and for people that you're going to be with. And so, um, you know, the four of you, as I recall we're always just thick as thieves. There was, there's always just this amazing support that you had for one another. And I never single, I never recall anybody even publicly being mad at one another. I'm sure you must've been frustrated at points, but it was always like this very cohesive group, this kind of elite military unit of people supporting each other. Um, I think okay. I remember being very grateful to have the three of them. And so, and there were other there were other obviously other female classmates that were upperclassmen and underclassmen in Company F one, and you all talked about this um, Karen Van Valkenburg who's class of eighty eight about how she was kind of like uh, really took the four of you under her wing and and she wasn't fr she wasn't friendly she didn't fraternize but she was she basically was there to support you during that time right yes. Yeah, I think she's just a very encouraging person. Um, yeah, and I I remember a case where I, for whatever reason, had to report to one of the two more evil cow rooms <laughs> in the company without naming names. Um, and so I'm standing at their door, and 
since we were in, uh, you know, Old South, just four rooms on that floor, I'm standing at the door and I'm getting ready to knock to report, you know, contemplating my life. And <laughs> and Valkenberg comes out of her room and she walks by. And it, as soon as I put my, you know, my hand up, I'm getting ready to knock. She just, without stopping, you know, she's not going to save me or get me out of anything, but she just walked by she said, stay strong, you know, so it's not like they were there to make it any easier, but even just, even just little, you know, comments like that just meant the world to you. And, uh, Shari, you also said those yearlings took care of you too, right? The class of 90. They did. Yeah. The class of 90, um, they, I don't know if they were afraid I was going to wither um, away, but when I had, you know, some meals or whatever, depending on what position you were sitting at, it, there were times it was probably hard to get enough food to eat. So on more than one occasion, they would bring me peanut butter and jelly sandwiches in a bread bag. You know, they won. Again, it was, I mean, that was more just looking out for me, not, they couldn't spare me anything, you know, on the table or they, they weren't out to make it easier, but it was just a genuine, you know, a gesture gesture. They were just concerned for our welfare. If nothing else, you know, they, you know, again, they weren't going to try and make it any easier, but they, they were looking out for you. Sure. I remember one of those blood drives. We had one of those blood drives when we were plebes. I remember sitting there talking to you about math tests or something. And I look at you, you look all confused. Or like, I'm like, how could she be confused? She's like, she knows everything, you know? And next thing I know, she just crashes and burns, just passes out. Passes out. Uh, that was... Uh, yeah, good memory. Yeah, that was... After that, I think I got a, a bread bag full of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. <laughs> I just I was talking to someone telling them about that story just the other day. They're like, give her Kool-Aid, give her Kool-Aid, give her Chips Ahoy, give, like, just get some sugar in her, get her going. <laughs> Okay, in my defense, and to this day, I like I show up to give blood, and they just say, "Yeah, no, <laughs> go away." <laughs> so, but the lady who was doing that, who was taking my blood, I must have scared her. Obviously, when I started going out, because apparently she just ripped the needle out and she wadded up a big paper towel and she like clinched my arm. She put my Basically, I'm holding on to my own shoulder. I mean, I'm out cold. But, um, <laughs> she crunched up a paper towel. So I wake up, and I have a bruise. It was like six inches long either side of where she had stuck the needle because she put that paper towel and, you know, she folded up my arm so all the blood pooled. So not only did I pass out, after I woke up, I looked like I... You've been beaten up. So, <laughs> yep, I got a bread bag with sandwiches. <laughs> and to this day, I can't give blood. So, yeah. Steph, you're mentioned about, I mean, Shara, you're mentioning the divisions, right? The fact that we had these, we were Company F1, we were in Old South. So there, you know, yeah. the Old South division, there are divisions, which ends up giving its way to a, a certain type of dynamic for trying to, yeah, have some cohesiveness as a, as a class, but also, you know, as a company, because you've only got so many bathrooms on each floor. And if you're a plebe, 
probably you're not going to have your own bathroom on that floor. You're going to be going down to the sinks or up top or something. So, you know, to what extent does that, I think, make it more difficult for young female cadets, you know, living in the, in the divisions? Matt, we were always in different divisions. Um, so that was kind of interesting. So, um, so there's uh, pockets of our company that I never really got to know. Like that never lived in the same division I did. And I, I just think our paths never really crossed um, in our own company, in our own class. So um, it's definitely interesting. Yeah, I think it's a mix. Like in some ways it was protective because you mostly had to worry about the people in your division as far as like when you were a plebe, paying up and down. That's like the people you were going to run into were those people. So at least that was a limited pool. But it was also super limiting because if you wanted to go visit, you know, there were only us two plebes in there. So if we wanted to go visit, you know, Sharon and Julie or you had to take your life in your own hand going down and going up the division. And yeah. And we didn't ever usually have bathrooms on our floor because there was only one bathroom in the whole division for, for girls. So we either, it was not on our floor. I don't think ever. I think we were in the basement for an entire year and a half. Right. And had to go shower in the basement on the third floor. And that was the work. Cause then you would run into everybody. <laughs> yeah. Well, now, now, uh, now company F1 is up in the new barracks in the Davis barracks. So they're, they're not divisions anymore. They're big, long floors, like what we saw in MacArthur or in Eisenhower. I think there's, and the company itself is like one whole big floor. Wow. That's really great. It'd probably be really different. I mean, definitely as an upperclassman, it would be great because, you know, you'd have access to everybody in your company all the time. And as a police, I, I don't know, it's still a mixed blessing. Can you imagine getting strung up in the hallway when now everyone can see it? <laughs> it must be very different now, too, with this whole coronavirus. I mean, nobody's even there. Those plebes are like, they're like civilians. They're just home. Wow. Well, what I thought, I was like, man, you know what? I having a daughter who's, you know, leaving college and I'm like, they are so sad to leave college. And I thought, Oh my gosh, can you imagine those plebes must be so happy? <laughs> I mean, if somebody had come in after spring break and said, you didn't have to go back, we would have been, <laughs> I, I don't know. We'd have been pretty happy. I think first are sad and the plebes are so happy. <laughs> yeah. It'll just make it harder for the plebes to go back though. <laughs> but will they go back recognized because they'll be yearlings right? well, they were recognized anyway because it was uh, spring break so they do recognition on spring break now oh that's right <laughs> but you know this, I, my nephew is a cow and so he's there and they're all connected by zoom and playing video games and whatever and my cousin said he actually wants to go back. And we, this is a kid who hates West Point with a passion. I mean, he just, he's there to play baseball. He's there to just basically get through, but he actually misses it. He wants to go back, which is kind of interesting. Dynamic. I think we would probably have been the same way. You feel like you're getting cheated a little bit, not being able to physically be there. I was talking to, uh, um, with your parents again. 
Yeah, I know. I mean, having my two back, I'll tell you, it's. I think they, they both would love to go back to college right now after after living home for the last four weeks or five weeks with us. Where <laughs> the natives are definitely getting restless here in the Schleck household. Um, yeah, I, I know that Holly West, you know, she's in charge of operations there at West Point. And I think every day is a new scenario. They're trying to think about like, when they bring them back, how the yearlings go to Buckner, what does our day look like? There's all kinds of different scenarios being, you know, contemplated. And for the next eight weeks or 10 weeks, it's going to be changing every single day, I imagine. Oh, I can't imagine. That'll be interesting. And if they don't get it back in time for Buckner, then do they lose like CTLT and DCLT? I'm assuming they still do those later to fit Buckner in. Right. Class so Steph, you have a story about our classmate who's your, your classmate from high school, Mark Kramer and, and beast, right? So you guys were, you guys were from the same high school, made the trip up to West Point. You end up getting a connect, reconnected beast and tell us a story. Well, and Liz helped remind me of this because she and I and he, Mark, were, I think we were coming up from I call like one of those breaks kind of mid um, plebe summer where you get, you know, to go down and have snacks and things like that. And, and I guess we were walking back and he said something to the effect of like, well, we're, we're halfway done. And, and we said, what are you talking about? Halfway done with plebe summer. And he's like, yeah, you know, the whole, pinging and and third man and walking like a dork and we and so we were like mark no that goes all year it's not the complete summer thing i have i think he was well i guess Liv and i had picked up on that by then that was gonna last but and I was, I was a pretty clueless lead but yeah, i figured the pinging thing was gonna last but what is amazing how little we knew coming in to West Point, I think, with, you know, not having, unlike you, Jamie, I can remember you were the book of all things West Point when we were, <laughs> like, um, and we, you know, we'd never been there. We had, I really didn't know what I was getting into, which in some ways I think is good because, you know, by the time you figure it out, you're halfway done. <laughs> yeah. I always figured the first day was going to be the worst. And so I dreaded nothing because I'd survived the first day and that was the worst, right? So I, I, because I was so clueless, I didn't stress or dread what was coming because I didn't know. Um, There's something to be said to that, I think. Uh Yeah. Probably the worst day was the day we came back from uh, Lake Frederick. Oh, yeah. Probably the longest day, one of the longest days of my life. Yep. I don't think they yep. do that anymore, Lake Frederick. That's not that's no longer part of Beast. Oh really? I don't think so. I don't think so. They they do do the march back, but they don't I don't think they do that bivouac, the big huge bivouac thing. They actually are at Buckner for that. It's more of a it's more tactical. It's less like less like summer camp and more like a an actual field exercise, I think. Uh-huh. Yeah, it always reminded me like it was probably like what the Scout Jamboree was like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So, so let's, let's go back all the way to the beginning here, 1986 and Jules, like maybe, maybe you can like help us think about 
what were you thinking back then going to West Point? You were from a military family. Uh, what made you, what made you want to go there and, and how did you come to have an interest in West Point? Well, um, my dad being in the military, he and my mom um, graduated from the University of Kentucky. And so all my life, they kept their Kentucky residency because they, they were insisting that I would go there. So um, about my junior, senior year, I was getting, well, my junior year, all my friends were getting all this college stuff, and I was too, but I knew that I had to go to University, University of Kentucky. And so that kind of um, upset me a little. And so my dad said that if I could get a scholarship to a school better than the University of Kentucky, that I could go there. And um, then one day he comes home and he had some female cadets um, that were um, assigned to his unit that summer, CPLT. And um, he was so impressed with them that he came home and he was like, you know, have you ever thought about West Point? And I was like, you know, no way. And so he just said he wanted me to, um, he just wanted me to apply to see if I could get in. And um, so I went through all that. And once I got in, he was, he just said, you know, now it's your decision. So he, they flew me down there. I had an overnight visit and I just kind of, you know, fell in love with the camaraderie and pomp and circumstance and just, um, I just kind of fell in love with it. And, um, so that's the rest is history. Are you the, are you the oldest in your family? You are right. Yes. So the first one, yes, to go I off am. The first one. No, so your, your dad, did he have, he had lieutenants or that were in his unit that were West Point grads? No, you know, when we did CPLT, he had two women from West Point come and serve with his unit. What was it like six weeks or so? And so that was his first time ever being around female cadets. And so he was just really impressed by them. And so he, you know, thought that that might be something I would do well at. <laughs> was was he an MP as well? Yes, he was. Right, yes, cool. he was. And, um, Cher, how about you? I think you, you had a little bit of a different, you had, you have always had a plan to end up exactly where you are which is to be an FBI agent. That was your plan. And so West Point, in a way, yeah. was a little bit of a distraction, but tell us that story about how you chose to go to West Point on your way to become an FBI agent. Yeah, my um, the goal was always to get to the FBI, as corny as it sounds, probably since sixth grade. <laughs> so, but I, I am the youngest of four um, kids in my family, and my three older siblings all went to a state university in Ohio. Um, and that was my plan. I was going to go, I was going to major in criminal justice. I was going to do the three years, the full-time work experience that the FBI required. I was, I planned on being a police officer in my hometown and then, you know, applying to be an FBI agent. And I honestly don't know if I knew anything about West Point right up until my junior year in high school. Never considered military. My family, um, nobody's in the military. So I had a really good guidance counselor at school. And he, knowing that I wanted to end up at the FBI, he suggested that I consider it. And he said it would probably help me get to the FBI. So I called the applicant coordinator in Cleveland FBI, this would have been probably early in my junior year. And I went and I visited and he assured me that 
being an academy grad and serving in the military would help me get to the FBI. So I changed my plans and uh, it was always, I mean, the end goal was always the same, but West Point initially was not at all part of the plan and even the army. So I just ended up loving the army. So I stayed longer. So it was kind of, I kind of went around the block to cross the street a little bit, <laughs> but yeah, I, I wouldn't, wouldn't change it. And you, you were, I was avi- you were an aviator in the army and then ended up going FBI aviation as well. So it was very much connected to your military career that you ended up doing what you did in the FBI as well. Right. Yeah. And that's even ironic too, because I honestly had no intention of flying either. I actually went, well, I did CTLT um, out at Schofield Barracks. I was lucky enough to head out there and I was in a signal intelligence unit and I was bored to tears and the Blackhawk unit was right next door and um, offered to take me for a ride. And that was it. I came back and I changed my branch selection, took the fast test. And it's ironic because, you know, had I not gone aviation and, and that in the army, I would not have had the opportunity likely to fly with the bureau. So that was also not really, not really part of the original plan, but it, it definitely all worked out. And Lib, how about you? Did you have a, did you, 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 you had a mission? So, um, I moved to Cape Coral as a junior in high school and, uh, my brother, my older brother had uh, already graduated high school and moved down here with us. And he went to a recruiting thing on the local college campus and drug me along. And uh, they were had a West Point rep there. And it sounded like a really good deal because um, my dad worked at the University of South Florida and I got tuition free, but not room and board. So um, one option was live at home and go to school where my dad worked. Option two was find myself a scholarship. And option three was work my way to college. So when I went to the West Point recruiting, you know, it's a full scholarship and a job. And, uh, you know, I looked at the, what they were looking for, you know, good grades, good safety. I was captain my swim team, girl state. I thought, I can do that. So I applied and I got accepted under the early admission in December and said, oh, that's a good enough plan for me. I'm done. And that's how I ended up at West Point. I didn't go visit. I didn't check it out. It was just a really good school with a full scholarship. And so I went to give it a try. And what they got me with, um, you could quit your first two years and you didn't owe anything. So I figured it was a no risk gamble. Like I could just go and try it. And if I didn't like it, I could leave. Um, That's not really when you get there, you know, if you leave, leave your loser, you quit. And I remember about, I don't know, must have been a couple months into a uh, plebe year and somebody pissed me off. And I said to myself, like, well, I'm not going to even consider quitting until I'm a year late because I got to get on the other side of this business to figure out whether or not I like it. That's fascinating. And then you end up being a career army officer, which is even more fascinating. It reminded me a little bit of Jen Bodian's book, Jen had 100% made her mind up that she was going to leave after yearling year. She was like hundred percent. I'm leaving. I'm going to go. She, I think she already had another school picked out. She was accepted. She was going to go. And then she did, um, 
But she decided to stay for the summer because she didn't want to leave anybody in a, in a lurch. She was committed to be a squad leader for Buckner. And so she went there and she was a squad leader and she fell in love with leadership. She fell in love with the idea of, you know, being that accountable leader. And she said, I'm staying. And she basically, I guess she lost her deposit to whatever school that was going to go to. And she, she lined up her yearlings on the last day of, of uh, Buckner and said, I want to thank you. You know, you've, you've really, I was 100% going to resign at the end of this, at the end of this assignment, at the end of Buckner, but you've made me want to stay. That, that, that was I was really impressed by that. That's amazing. So, Steph, how about you? Um, it's funny we're all kind of similar, but I had never really heard of West Point. Didn't know anything about it until I took my SATs, um, and then I started getting mailings from them and kind of a similar, I didn't have, you know, my home life was a little difficult and I was really looking for an independent college experience that, you know, I could pay for myself and, um, and be, be fully independent. And so I just kind of went all in on it, applied, never even thought of applying anywhere else really so it's lucky for me that it worked out and um, got in and went never having you know no military background at all and um, but it was I'm gonna have to say I never I really never thought about leaving (laughs) it was always yeah it was always just what I was gonna do and I you know I never had that option I don't think of of quitting so it was great though so did you, um, you never visited it, you said, right, Steph? You, your first day was our day? No. And, yeah. And well, Lib, the night before. <laughs> Liv, is that you too? First day was our day? Yeah, I mean, you had to pay for it on your own, right? And so that was just a lot of money when I was already accepted and, and going to go. So what was the point of visiting? <laughs> and, Shara, did you visit? I actually did visit. I there was a girl in the high school class in front of me, uh, Christina Uhas, who was up there as a plebe. And actually a cow, uh, Beth Thomas, was also there. So whatever program they had where you could go there and spend a week with a plebe, I ended up doing that uh, junior year. So I spent the week, and if I remember correctly, Christina was in A1, so that was an especially eye-opening <laughs> eye-opening experience and probably good for me to see but yeah so I spent a week there um which was awesome I mean and like you know just falling in love with the place as far as the history and you know and again you're you're a visitor you're not the one getting yelled at or anything so it was probably kind of a false perception on my part but yeah it was it was a very worthwhile week being up there so let's jump forward here to present day and uh, and kind of thinking back about the influences of West Point, how it impacted your careers, how it impacted your life and uh, where we where we are right now. So um, Libby, you've had not just your career to manage, but also your husband's. Right. So you, you're both career army officers. You've been having to manage that kind of like yin and yang of like 
whose whose career is is the one that we're kind of focused on right now and who's going to get deployed and who's not and who's going to be home with the kids and so you and Russ actually had to rotate deployments right so so tell us about the dynamic of that how, how did that go down so um so the first half of our career was pretty straightforward because um Russ was an infantry officer and I was quartermaster and so we were in the same year group and we didn't have any kids and so basically he would get an assignment and wherever he was assigned, there was a quartermaster job. So as long as I followed him, life was good. And as far as I was concerned, that was good because I was on the front lines of the quartermaster corps, right? Um, you know, if he was in the infantry, I was in the Ford's Corps Battalion or the main Corps Battalion. Um, and then when I came out of command, we wanted to have kids. And so Russ had said, I am never going back to West Point. And then, and then he was in command and he was in Macedonia and he said, Hey, I think maybe we should consider that West Point thing. So we applied and got picked up to go back and teach. And for us, that was kind of a, a five year break. It was a two year grad school and a three years at West Point. And so that was our, you know, shot to have some kids and to, to get out of the infantry world for a little while. And so I went to the math department as a math major, Russ under the systems department. He's an assistant systems major. Um, and we had, I actually had my daughter while I was in grad school and I fell in love with teaching. Like I just, and of course I, I tutored so many people when I was a cadet, especially my sister. Especially um, me, especially me in math. Thank you very me. much. Yeah. <laughs> me. <laughs> So I, you know, and, and, you know, sad is, is, you know, I was getting, I was not going to do like your dad did, but I ended up really loving teaching in the math department at West Point. Um, it was just one of the best assignments I ever had. And I love company command. I love my pushing time. Um, but there's just something about being in the classroom with cadets and, and teaching math that I really enjoyed. And so I applied for the PhD program. Oh, and then so, and then we had to pick our branches. So we went 49, became operations research systems analyst, um, because I also felt that was a better way to ba- balance family. And so we, I was a 49 officer at that point, um, and applied for the PhD program and kind of did 49, um, assignments from that. And then Russ ended up being a 49 officer as well. And so wherever we went, as long as we went to big posts that had two jobs, so we were at the, you know, the, the trade off centers that had lots of major and lieutenant colonel positions and, and West Point. And so what we did was you would volunteer for deployment because you didn't deploy a 49, a 49 battalion, right? Is uh, 49 officers would fill staff slots on deployment. So we would volunteer for deployment um, appropriately so that we could um, not go at the same time. And so Russ went my first year in grad school when the twins were 11 months old. And then I went from West Point actually on my second tour when the twins were four. And, and you uh, said there was a, to, there was a very big difference between when Russ went and when you went in terms of the support from the military community, right? Yeah, huge difference. So one, I was, we were stationed at White Sands Missile Range, which is a, a very tiny community. And we really loved it. And Russ's boss um, was this uh, Lieutenant Colonel Lisa Lamb who had just come to the unit I'd already been there a couple of years and she actually lived like just down the street from us. And when Russ left, she started checking in on me and um, turned out to be one of my best friends. And so, you know, we had this whole community at White Sands that helped me out. 
it snowed one day and I can't get over the path. And like my boss's boss came over with her daughter to babysit the kids. And, you know, cause it never snows at White Sands, Pennsylvania. And so I had this whole huge support unit while he was gone. Um, they gave me an office at my old job so I could do schoolwork. Um, but then when we were at West Point uh, and I deployed, I don't even think people paid attention to the fact that Russ's wife was gone. Like, nobody knocked on his door to help him snow and get the kids to school. And, right, I think, like, the fact that I was deployed was an afterthought. So he was just, you know, doing the single dad thing, three kids, right, Hol- doing everything you you have to do um, oh, very, very well. I wonder, like, how that actually, is that, so is that almost like, because the military community is, you know, it's, it, I'm sure there have been volumes written about this, about how you just know when somebody's deployed, you just step up and everybody's kind of helping around. And But I think, is there also kind of like a little bit of sexism associated with that too? Like you expect that most of the time, uh, not a lot of the time, it's a man that's being deployed. And so the woman has got this whole network of other of other women, but the man doesn't necessarily have the network of what is the typical support structure of women, I think, right? So he was kind of left high and dry. So, you know, Russ is an interesting character too, because he, he uh, like on one hand, that's true, but on the other hand, um, he never had any of the expectations of volunteering that whether you were officer or not, right? PTA, Russ would be like, I'm sorry, I'm busy. And the ladies would be like, oh, that's okay. And I'd be like, I'm sorry, and I'm busy. They're like, but you can sit in just a half an hour, right? Yeah, it's also about like kind of um, an interesting free pass on one hand, but on the other hand, it didn't occur to anybody that he might need some help. Interesting. <laughs> so, uh, and of course, he's very capable, great, great dad. So, um, so it's just kind of fun. And I remember we went to station together, and we used to do officer PT every Friday. Um, and so we would both show up for officer PT. And then one day, one week I was TDY and he showed up to officer PT alone and his boss looked at him and said, well, where are the kids? And Russ was like, the same place they are where my wife's here. <laughs> right? Like for most, most officers who are our age or older um, had different support structures and those things just weren't part of their lives or to occur to them. I think if you're in the army now, it's a very different nature and this is way more common, right? But we were kind of that generation gap where, you know, current, like, you know, when's the last time you met a general officer, you know, general officer whose wife worked, right? Um, they're very common now where I think they weren't 20, 30 years ago. Which is kind of like kind of moving along this whole, line of how we have to modernize as an army and be supportive of these, these um, spouse careers and allow people to also have careers. It's not, you know, the career of just being the spouse of a military member is not something that um, is really a a 21st century situation. Um, Steph and Steph and Julie, I, I recognize that both of you have also played the role of, you know, being the, being the support structure for, a, a deployed um, spouse. And so what was that like to kind of move on to the other side of the, of the, of the fence, so to speak, and, and be part of that support structure when you were also formerly an officer as well. So like any kind of unique 
circumstances that present themselves as a result of that? I, I think in my case, um, when Mike deployed, it was, um, it was a little different because he's medical core. Um, he's a doctor and he, they just don't have the same unit structure at all. I mean, his first sergeant and company commander, he probably couldn't pick out of a crowd. You know, he, he gets an email from him once a year or twice a year and that's about it. So when he deployed, there really wasn't that typical army response. He went, you know, attached to another battalion um, that was out of Kentucky. <laughs> um, so it was really, it was kind of odd, but it was fine. I had, um, once we moved to San Antonio, I had stopped working. And so, you know, it was, I was used to kind of doing everything anyway. So it was fine. It was fine. But Julie, I know you had more typical army response, right? More difficult? Is that what you said? Or typical, you know, additional unit health and all that. Yes. Um, Well, we lived at Fort Campbell and um, just, I mean, from again, from being from a military background, I was just right at home at Fort Campbell, just being on a military base. And um, so when, when both of us were in the army, it was funny because the women on a military post just bond together in your community where you live. And so they just take care of each other. And so that kind of, was available for me when um, I was also in the military, but especially when I left the military and I was a army wife, um, it was just amazing the things they would do. I, you know, I had two small kids and Rob would be deployed and, and um, you know, if the kids were really sick, I mean, people would help me. I mean, it's just, it was just amazing. I remember particularly when I was pregnant with Sarah and Katie was a less than two and I got so sick. It was like food poisoning. And my, my friend across the street, she was actually studying to be a nurse and she came over, picked up Katie and she kept her all day. And she brought her back that evening, um, bathed in her pajamas and just ready to go to bed. So things like that, they would just help you with. And it was just, I loved it. I love being part of the military community. And Cher, you, you and Patrick, I mean, obviously you're kind of managing both careers the way that you were. What was transition like for you moving from like one, one big infrastructure of, of the army to a new big infrastructure of the FBI. And, and then you have a, you mentioned like he was initially had a civilian career, but then ended up in the F follow you to the bureau. Right. Yeah, it was uh, for me, the transition, especially since I ended up loving the army um, and staying longer than I planned. And I actually had significant, uh, it was a difficult decision to get out of the army, even though, you know, my only goal was to become an FBI agent. It was still very hard to make that decision, but also it was my last day in the army was August 31st of 2001. So, you know, 11 days later, is September 11th. Um, so I was with my parents. I was between, uh, the army and the FBI, my class date. Pat had gotten out of the army a year before I did, and he was with Comair Airlines, um, Delta's regional. 
he got furloughed on 9-11. So he was kind of in limbo. It was bittersweet for me because I knew having spent most of my time at Fort Campbell, I knew those guys were going wherever, you know, they ended up getting deployed. Um, and even though I was out and I was about to start, you know, the, the thing I had wanted to do my entire life, it was, it was still kind of a difficult, still kind of a difficult transition. But, um, so it was four months. I started the FBI Academy in December and then Pat, after being furloughed, you know, and, um, just, he kind of realized he needed to do something a little more important, I guess, the airlines. I mean, he had wanted to get to the airlines, but it, it really wasn't living up to what he had hoped it would be. So he came into the Bureau seven months after I did. Um, and I, I'd say me being in the Bureau, I honestly didn't know there were aviation opportunities. Um, at the time, I had no intent of flying for him. But just being in and starting to learn about those and then with, you know, the furlough for him, um, for him, it was kind of the best of the best of both worlds getting to fly. I mean, when he applied, he got in in probably six months, which is incredibly uh, fast. And they, they don't hire pilots specifically for after 9-11. They kind of did that um, because of the circumstances. But yeah, so it was a difficult transition, not for any other reason than I, I just, I, you know, it really was kind of bittersweet leaving the army and then knowing what, you know, was kind of about to happen with the, you know, the unit you just left. So. Is there the same sense of community in the FBI as there was in the army? There's not stuff. Um, well, I, I guess it depends. Like we, we went to Richmond first, which is an incredibly small office. Um, we were on separate squads. They, they try not to put you on the same squad. So I was on a violent crime squad in Richmond and Pat was on the joint terrorism task force. So anytime something happened in Richmond, you know, a big arrest or something like that, you ended up, everybody ended up being on it. So there, I would say in an office that small, there was that sense of camaraderie, um, but then going to Cleveland and then Washington field office, just based on the size, there's really not like, there's not a lot of socializing outside of work. Um, and I, that's probably one of the biggest things I miss, um, having left the army. Interesting. So here we are 20, what, 20, almost 29 years later. And the four of you, the, the, the fab four, you know, started with started with four, finished with four, always looking out for each other. You've been through thick and thin. Um, I'm sure you've been, you know, spring breaks and vacations and weddings. And um, you've been there for each other in all these all these circumstances of, of trials and tribulations. When you look back at the last 29 years since we graduated uh, or 28 years, um, what were some of the kind of more impactful points in your life where you look back and you had this support structure, you had this, these, you know, these three other people that were just part of your life that you could lean on to be that support structure for you. So for me, we were pretty geographically separated, but I just remember talking to Steph once 
out of the middle of nowhere. And it was like, we hadn't talked in a really long time. And yet I could still like bear my soul like it was yesterday. <laughs> um, you know, even if it had been three years since we chatted. So that's just a unique bond for me that um, I don't have a lot of other friends with where I'm like, sure, I'll tell you my deepest, darkest secret. Go. <laughs> I think it's true that we've seen each other at our worst, really. And so since then, kind of whatever happens isn't that big of a deal, I guess. And it's always nice to know that they're there. And Steph, I mean, you you personally have had some some really tough challenges as well. I mean, you, you, could we maybe talk a little bit about some of the medical challenges that you faced? Sure. So, yeah, I've had, <laughs> for being an amazingly healthy person, I've had some um, some issues. And part of it, I mean, I guess, first I had, both of my kids were very premature. My first one was 10 weeks early and um, for no good reason. And then my second one, which we expected maybe would be not have that issue since we didn't know why, um, started trying at 14 weeks early. And so, you know, there was a whole just the gamut of medical issues trying to keep him in the hopper until he was done. Um, and so, I, you know, I mean, just it was crazy, like bed rest for eight weeks of, and I mean, you know, bed rest, like you can get up and go to the bathroom and that is it. <laughs> and then you're laying on your left side. So, you know, through all of that, it was um, great to have some female diversion. And then um, about when my son was three, so in 2006, I got diagnosed with um, breast cancer, right? Just completely out of the blue. Um, found a lump and my husband's a radiation oncologist and I was like hey honey what do you think of this and you know probably within two days we had a diagnosis that it was that it was cancer and um that from all from all signs looked like it had spread at least to my lymph nodes and um so that was really crazy considering, you know, I had a three-year-old and I'd never had any problems. You definitely, you know, one day you're fine and the next day you're facing this diagnosis. It's really hard to believe, but um, thankfully my husband's amazing and um, definitely made sure I had all the, the best resources. Um, and so it was probably a good... I mean, I did, I had surgery and just like West Point, I'm really good at going through something once and making it through. And so I kind of wanted to make sure that I would just go through this one. So I made the kind of difficult call to do bilateral mastectomies. And um, then I did chemo for, gosh, months and months. And um, after that, I had to do radiation treatment. And then um, because of the type of cancer I had, which was um, HER2, which at the time was 
fairly rare. They had a new protocol where I did a research protocol after that where they um, tried to do uh, like an antibody um, immunotherapy kind of thing. And so all of it worked great. I, knock on wood, had not had any other problems, but it was definitely almost a full two years of my life just spent in treatment for that. Um, so big shout out to all military doctors. They are amazing, amazing people. And I do not think the Army got their money out of me and what I had spent in medical care. But um, anyway, so it was great. Um, I, you know, a, a couple years after that, I gave it a couple years off before I tried to do the reconstruction route. And then that was its own series of debacles um, because of radiation therapy, you know, things don't heal. And it probably was another four years of on again, off again surgeries and things. But all that was behind me. And it was, it was wonderful just to talk to the girls every now and then and mostly about other things because nobody wants to talk about that when they're going through it. But uh, anyway, that's my story. And if anyone is dealing with this kind of stuff now, you're more than welcome to reach out to me at any time. And I'd be happy to, to talk to anybody. Well, thank you for your bravery in sharing that story. And I think also throughout the entire, the entire situation, I can just picture the, the the level of attitude and grit and kind of get shit done attitude that you had at West Point is the same way that you kind of persevered there and, and pulled through. And I, I recall speaking to Libby during this process and just, you know, seeing the look of concern that she had at the time and just genuine, um, you know, it was like my sister basically that she was saying this is going through this and she felt so, um, impacted by it. And I think that, um, you know, while, while we all share a very special bond because we're classmates, because we went through West Point, um, I think that there's an even more special bond that the four of you have. And, uh, and I'm, I've always just been so, so uh, impressed by it and I've, I've admired it and um, so grateful for it, actually. So, um, so thank, you for, thank you for sharing that story. Um, I wonder if we could just maybe close with a couple just reflections from each of you and then we can, we can wrap this up. So, um, Sharon, as, as you look back the last, you know, couple decades of your life and the impact of West Point, can you share with us a couple of reflections of, of what you've, what you've kind of taken from the experience and how it's impacted you? Um, I guess the, the first, the first point that, I, I always think about, you know, we're all, most of us are type A personalities and we like to plan and, you know, we like to forecast out and we like things to go our way. And I just always remember the whole West Point and Army thing was never part of my plan. And I just, I remind myself, never, like, never forget your goal. Always keep working for that. But you should be less attached to the plan that you think, you know, is the right one because it, it really doesn't matter what route, as long as you get to where you want to get to, you know, I look back, I, I would not trade at all the West Point, the army, um, for everything it was to me. 
And I, I remind myself, it, it wasn't even my plan. So I think you just always have to be open. No matter how much you think you have a plan in place, I think you just always have to be open to, you know, getting derailed because it might be for the best. Julie, how about you? Well, um, I'm, I'm just really thankful that I had the opportunity to attend West Point. Um, it gave me a lot more confidence um, physically and mentally because I was just doing all kinds of things that I just never in the world thought that I would be doing, like airborne, aerosols, obstacle courses, you know, military training, all that stuff. So it just gave me a lot of confidence um, that I don't think I would have had otherwise in my abilities. Um, but one kind of regret that I have is I feel like I just didn't like, because I think because I'm an army brat, I went, I would move from one place to the other. And each time I left the place, I would just kind of close that chapter and then just kind of push it away. Like it wasn't like a continuing book. It was just, I just kind of closed it. It was gone and I moved on to the next thing. So I, I think I was kind of feeling that way about West Point, that it was just, you know, this was just four years out of my life, and then I was moving on to something else. And um, so I wish that I had just kind of soaked it in more and just realized and appreciate the value of that experience and um, and just that that was a pivotal time in my life that I was just going to carry through um, the rest of my life. So, um, yeah, that's just one of my regrets. Lib, how about you? So, um, for me, I mean, it's a, if I look back on my, you know, life, I spent 13 years on West Point, and that is the longest place I've ever lived anywhere in my life. I grew, I jumped around growing up, and so, I mean, not only does West Point have all these memories from my cadet years, from my captain years, I got promoted to major there, I retired from there. I learned to be a teacher there, my passion for cadets and learning on the other side. I mean, there's just so much in my life is um, kind of revolves around that. So it's not just my cadet years that I have memories of, but my first tour and my second tour. And, uh, you know, my daughter, you know, lived nine of her 20 years there. So she considers it her hometown in a weird way. Um, so there's just so many good memories and, and events and occurrences that occurred throughout my time in my life that's uh, associated with West Point. It's an amazing journey. And Steph, how about you? <laughs> um, I would say, you know, I have just a really warm place in my heart for West Point. And um, I laugh all the time, my husband and I, because, you know, we've been married 25 years and West Point was definitely the start of our relationships. And we have these kids and we've been telling them West Point stories about the, the people and the things that we did. And um, I can't believe neither of them wants to go to West Point. It seems, <laughs> it's hard to believe, but um, it really, I think back about, you know, West Point and all that I was Fort Bragg and, Belvoir and Fort Meade and I went over to the dark side for a while and definitely the strongest relationships with people I have in my entire life are all tied to that um, 
West Point and, and the military. And, and I don't know. If you, if you're just great. Yeah, you know, I worked for Parker and Gamble for years afterwards, but you just don't have the same. It's hard to have the same connection when you're, you weren't driving tanks and throwing hand grenades and crying. And yeah, I don't know. Anyway, it was a wonderful experience. And I think it, it shapes us all into capable people that are good at heart and able to make the world a better place. And hopefully, hopefully that will stay with us forever. Well, we got we got many more years to go, right? Because I figure we're we're all turning fifty, some you know fifty, fifty one, whatever. I my feeling is we should work well into our seventies. We should live into our eighties or nineties. So we've got another you know forty, fifty years of uh, being able to tell these stories and hang out. Maybe I will get to every single classmate in the old grad podcast. Who knows? So mm-hmm. I we I am do a whole group reunion. Yeah. We get everybody. I am so grateful that the four of you agreed to do this. And um, I've always been so fascinated that decisions are, are made as a committee. Right. So I, I checked with all of you and then there was like silence for a little bit. And then you said, well, we'll do it. You know, we've, we've, we've conferred among ourselves and we're, we've agreed we're, we're going to do it. Um, I've watched an awe. For, <laughs> I've watched an awe for four years at how each one of you has just been just a stellar stellar performer and a, a wonderful friend, how you supported each other, how you supported, you supported me, Libby, you saved my ass in plebe calculus. Thank you. Um, you know, uh, Steph, Sharon, Julie, I just, I just think the world of you. And I've, I've also said this before is that, you know, when I think about the influence of, of women in my life, of course, my mom and my sister, and my wife, my daughters are, you know, very much, you know, huge influence. But right after that, I think the four of you are probably the most influential people in my life. And I'm so grateful. I, I love you like sisters. I'm so grateful for the relationship that we've always had. And um, I'm so, um, I'm just so honored to be able to call you classmates and friends and sisters. And so thank you for joining us tonight. And thank you for being on the Old Grad Podcast with me. Thanks, Jamie. Thank you, All right, the credits are going to roll out. Thank you for joining us on this edition of the Duty Shall Be Done Old Grad Podcast. Please check back on this Facebook page for information about featured guests and upcoming episodes of the Duty Shall Be Done Old Grad Podcast. Great job, guys. Once we finally got the damn, uh, we can put our video back up. Once we got, once we got the stupid uh, video thing running the right way, I'm sorry, I just didn't have the bandwidth to uh, to run this. Uh, were there any comments? I forgot to ask you if there's uh, anybody having hundreds, anything. hundreds of comments. Most of them were about my inept, um, my inept ability to manage the. Um, I wasn't able to really react to them because I was afraid to open up Facebook and, and have it, uh, have it crash on me. Jamie, come on, man. Bueller, anyone. Let's see what we got here. I think it's fine. Can you hear me? I'm still here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hi. So. So, um, yeah, so we, I felt like we barely got to talk about much yet we covered a whole ton of stuff at the same time too yep amazing 
Oh my god. I know. I hope it wasn't too painful for you, Jamie. I no. don't feel like we're as as some of your yeah, this, the, well, you know what? The, the beauty of this is is that I recorded the whole thing, so I'm going to actually have the audio. I'll be able to stitch it together, and we'll have a really good audio version. Most people listen through the Podbean podcast anyway, so they'll they'll hear it that way. There's funny stories about Beast and Jamie Schweitzel. We those always come up. They've 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 been out there enough times that people know them. So. <laughs> Um, yeah, so, so anyway, I think hopefully this year, there's some big events. We should definitely try to capitalize on them. Like Eddie Bates is going to retire at some point in the next 12 months. Bax and Poche are also going to retire. So we should definitely try to, you know, capitalize on those as an opportunity to get together. Yeah, and Poche in Iraq, it was so awesome. He was on staff the same time I was there. Oh, neat. Went out to dinner a couple times. By that, I mean, I went to his mess hall and ate. So <laughs> <All> relative. <laughs> so, yeah. So, yeah, hopefully they'll all publicize ahead of time. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. Well, where is Luke? you know? He's down by you. He's, at Fort, he's in Texas. Fort Hood, I think. I know. Oh, okay. Baxter Dave Baxter is here, where I am. I oh, wow. I haven't seen him yet. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. He lives actually not very far from me. Well, everybody can come stay here for Eddie's retirement, and we'll all go stay with Julie for Dave. Okay. That sounds great. <laughs> Dave's got to be pushing 30 years, right? Oh, Dave, yeah. Dave's got 30 like 32 years, 30, like he's four years in the army, you know, so we're coming up on 30 next year. Damn, I thought they used to mandatory retire you at 30. Yeah, but your, your, um, your prior service doesn't count towards retirement. It's, it's your commissioned years of service. So 30 years. Yeah. You get extra pay, but no extra time in service. Gotcha. Okay. That makes sense. What's Mike's deal? Is he going to retire at some point soon? He did. Oh, he did. He okay. retired in, um, yeah, three or four years ago. I can't remember now. But he—it's sort of like he retired and sort of like he did because he just came back into the exact same office with the exact same patients. Just they pay him more, so mm-hmm. he doesn't have to wear a uniform. He doesn't have to wear a uniform. And he doesn't have to pay PPS. <laughs> most importantly, he doesn't have to ask for approval for leave. <laughs> That was really weird. The first, like the first weekend I went anywhere in my job and I was like, should I tell my boss I'm going out of town? Does he need to know that? <laughs> and my colleagues are like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I'm leaving a 50 mile radius. <laughs> that's what, that's what Kevin Barry, Kevin Barry was talking about that too. The first time he took leave, like after, after he retired, he's like, nobody knows where I'm going and nobody like, I don't have to be accountable to anybody. Just go. Very strange. Great though, right? Very. And the first time, the second semester, they asked me to pick up an extra class. And I was like, sure, fine. And then I got paid. I was like, <laughs> you don't just ask me to do extra work and don't pay me. <laughs> so all of a sudden I got this thing in my contract. I'm like, 
where did that the money come from? They're like, oh, that's an overload. <laughs> so, so Sharon, are you going to retire at 30 years? Do you, do you also have like a MRD? I will retire at the 20 year mark as an agent. So, um, to be eligible, we have to do 20 years as an agent and be 50 years or older. And then our mandatory retirement is 57 years old, but I am going when I'm eligible. So about one year, 11 months and eight days. Wow. But who's counting? Who's counting? Who's counting? And so the, then yeah. what, then you'll go into the private sector and be a consultant or something for like no. Booz Allen? No? Uh, <laughs> Pat and I will go <laughs> to our property on, in upstate New York where he's from. So we bought a property in a, a it literally like five minutes from where he grew up. So we will go. His goal is to ride his tractor and pick up sticks. And uh, yeah, I'm not sure what I'm going to do yet, but I'm going to retire. <laughs> I'm sure you'll do something really cool. What about you, Jules? What's Ronnie do? What's your, where are you guys? He is a, um, senior Intel analyst on Redstone. Also, he's a defense contractor, and um, he's going to retire probably in about two years, maybe a little less than two years. And um, I'm probably going to work a few more years and then retire with him. So, Did, was, he, was he your high school sweetheart? Did I hear that right? No, 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 no. Uh-huh. <laughs> we met on Zoom actually. <laughs> An online dating site. Oh, oh nice. Yeah, really. It's kind of cool. So. It's amazing how many people meet that way nowadays. Mm-hmm. Well, it's hard to meet people now, you know? And um, so, yeah, so, yeah, it worked for us, but we're very thankful for it. That <laughs> yeah. was weird. I set my dad up on a dating app after my mom died. That was very surreal. That's right. I remember you saying that. <laughs> But then they got married. <laughs> I, I know it happened. <laughs> so, but what was your uh, comments out of Jen Bodian's book? I don't think you ever got to any of them, Dean. I got to a couple of them. I was telling the story about her being in the deuce and a half, and the guys passing around the pornography. Oh, yeah. and yeah. Um, yeah, it was fascinating to. I wish I. I, you know, it's, there's so much to talk about, but, um, you know, reading that book and then also knowing some of the players like Captain Cardos, but she changed his name, like infantry officer that was like, so focused on like, you know, being in shape and physical fitness. And he said, made a couple comments to her several times about weight control and how it planted the seed. And, um, also because she roomed with, um, Laura Fecko and she describes this woman cat in the book and, and it was definitely Laura Fecko because he was, you know, the way it was, the, the, the description was so accurate that, you know, her father was a grad, her sister was a grad. And um, so it was, it was just really fascinating. And a lot of it was also like after West Point. So the, I think the challenge for her, and what I was trying to put out there, but I don't think I explained it well, was that, you know, West Point does not necessarily represent these wonderful memories for everybody. You know, like there, there's definitely right. like, she's got some pain. She, she does not want to go back. She does not want to be reconnected. This, it represents like, and it, you know, it was, it was, it was, you know, mental health dysfunction. It was, you know, bulimia, but for her, it's just, 
she doesn't want to doesn't want to go back. Doesn't want to revisit. She wants to watch it from afar. You know, and they, that's what she said in the book. I wonder if like she wrote that book like what ten years ago? I think. Yeah, it was a while. Yeah, so maybe. Yeah, so she, she came up once um, when they were promoting books, and I, I remember talking to her about it. And uh, I think she said something like, "You know, and it wasn't one of those books that you know AOG was definitely like promoting, like, well, yeah, this is great book, right? And everybody read the new class book, class of '91, right? Like." That wasn't her response to that book, right? Oh, I'm sure that's true. Yeah. yeah so yeah, it's not exactly like a, a recruiting book that you you pass along to young ladies who are considering going to West Point. Um, and she she wrote in there too, like she talked about how she got to she got to do like they practice like our day with the civilians, and a lot of the grads go back and they're plea for a day. And like to her, this was like this cathartic thing was to go back and relive her R day. And she got to speak to some of the female cadets and she said like she walked away and was in a rearview mirror and she's not looking back. So she's one of the people that I think, although I did reach out to her in LinkedIn and I had a little back and forth with her trying to, trying to reconnect with her. But, um, I, I always remember her as being like really artistic and kind of like not, yeah. your, not your yeah, tip. I'm one of her paintings. Oh, you do? Yeah, I mean, I was a roommate second semester senior year, first year. You're the and, roommate. Um, yeah, who, I have one of her paintings. You're the roommate who was checking for ghosts in the room or something, right? That she said. Probably, <laughs> I was. I was one of the roommates mentioned in there. Yes. I I think she yeah. was. I think that was she was reflecting on like going to Pershing Barracks because I went. I went there. Jim Montgomery went there. You went there, Julie, and so did Jen Boniam when we were firsties, and. um I think she was trying, she was saying like the, the rooms were different and she met you and you were like, I think cleaning it to like, or like looking for ghosts or something. I forget how she put it, but like, <laughs> so. Well, I also visited her when we were, I don't, I think when we were, I can't even remember where she was, maybe down in Texas, I'm not sure. But I mean, she is just amazing. I mean, she was making her own furniture. She was painting on the ceiling above her breakfast nook and I mean she had like her own little studio set up in one of the rooms and she really is very gifted she would be really fascinated to see this new um, art studio and that's not studio but an art exhibit that they're looking to build at West Point so the biggest probably the biggest new project that they have on the horizon they're going to build a um uh, like it goes off of Trophy Point, but if you look at Trophy, you don't see it. It's not. It's not a building you're going to see. It. It. It's actually horizontal, so it doesn't. It doesn't. Um, doesn't affect the view. It hangs off of the cliff and looks at like out at the at the Hudson. Okay. And it'll be like a gallery. It'll be a gallery, yeah. So it's going to host like a bunch of uh, like cadet paintings and paintings of you know from the army and rotate like military art through there all right well i should probably hang up here and and get ready for another work week but thank you again for doing it Uh, i got a couple comments here really good once you went to the audio thanks so much rob craddock wants to get your phone number um steph 
I mean, um, Sharon, wanted to reconnect with you. Um, Robbie. So I can pass that along to him. I'll, I'll give him your phone number and everything. Oh, I listened to Amuso George's podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had no idea that was going on during here. You know, a lot of people had no idea. Yeah. What was going on? Yeah. <laughs> I still have no idea. Because Libby just told me. Um, it was the whole thing with, um, so the story was about how, um, in describing Rob Burns and it ended up snowballing into this, like, you know, first class board and all this other kind of stuff. And he got kicked out. And, um, you know, there's this, like, basically there was this review board and I ended up being like the critical sort of like, like witness of what was said and how it was said. And, and, uh, he was probably the most formative tough experience of my cadet career is having to explain exactly what happened. And if we didn't talk about the C1 thing, like if you guys, like if they had tried to move two of you to C1, but we didn't, I didn't get to that. That's all right. Remember who did they, was it Tony Glaze? They ended up moving. Who they ended up moving? I don't think they ended up moving anybody. Oh, they didn't graduate anybody from C1. C1 did not have any women. Huh. Wait, I thought they did end up, one of them, I don't remember. Nikki or, yeah. I remember Kim Evans was talking about that. That somebody got moved to her company so she wouldn't be alone. Room with Nikki for, I remember with Nikki when I was on staff at one year, McCasey, and I'm McCasey, um, Olsen, Michelle Olsen. It definitely happened that um, that somebody moved into Becky Canis's company. Oh, that yeah, that's probably where I was. I think we just took less pictures back then. There just weren't as many. It was it wasn't like yeah, we had, did. we didn't have yeah, like didn't iPhones. Have uh. <laughs> we didn't need the evidence either. <laughs> right, probably good. Plus, you had to mail in your film roll. Right. <laughs> <laughs> And you'd have like hands over <laughs> one picture in focus. <laughs> it seems like all those pictures that we have where we're like having cocktails at Jamie's house or whatever, everybody's blurry. <laughs> that was a, yeah, we, it was probably in focus for us, but not, not in focus for anybody else. <laughs> not now. <laughs> Amy for bearing with us through all yeah, this. Yeah, thank you. No, Thanks, thank Jenny. you for bearing with me with the technical glitches and everything. It was what a what a soup sandwich that was. But I think it was just the whole idea of having to have four videos and then broadcasting on Facebook was probably just too much. Especially this day and age when everybody's online constantly. Right. I think that bandwidth is stressed. Yeah, yeah, I'm just, I'm just going back through C1. There's definitely, there's no names here that would be a woman, I don't think. I just can't see. I don't think, uh, I think C1 did not have any women. So my yeah. memory, my memory might be right that they were talking about moving two of you there, but you guys don't remember that, so maybe not. Oh, no, we didn't, probably. We didn't talk about Major Fromm either. Female, female tag. No. Okay. Or big commanders or, yeah. There's so much to talk about. There's so much to talk about. We'll have to leave it for the 30th reunion or whenever we get together next, we can, you know, I didn't talk about sending you off stuff on the, on your laundry mission and not coming back. 
<laughs> not coming back. Exactly. We we didn't. Or that. Oh, I was going to say, remember that cadence too? I can remember when we were plebes that they used to call all the time about my girl's a new cadet. Oh, yeah. oh yeah. I think about that all the time. I'm like, oh, I bet they don't sing that anymore. Wow, <laughs> <laughs> and the Chiquita Banana and all of that stuff, right? Mm. <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, what was it? I don't remember My Girl's a New Cadet. Like, I remember My Girl's a Vegetable. I remember that. Oh, uh, that one too. No, one was a My Girl's a New Cadet. I haven't even met her yet. No, you don't remember that? No. <laughs> I'll have to go get Mike to remind me of all the lines and I'll sing it for you at the next reunion. 